to kick this one off, uh, I was thinking I would sing you a song that I sang in preschool that was probably my favorite song. You remember songs from preschool? Uh, oddly enough, yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> somehow that one stuck. The things that you hold on to from like three and four years old, despite all the other things that you've forgotten. <laughs> <laughs> it's amazing. So uh, sing along if you remember. <clears throat> My name is Stegosaurus, I'm a funny looking dinosaur. For on my back are many bony plates and on my tail there's more. My front two legs are very short, my back two legs are long. My body's big, my head is small, I'm put together wrong. Sometimes another dinosaur comes by and wants to fight. I don't use fists, I use my tail. It has four sharp, sharp spikes. It rips the flesh clean off their bones and leaves them shredded and stunned. They don't have any sign of life, so I fuck their skull for fun. I, I don't. My name is Stegosaurus. I'm a dirty little dinosaur. <laughs> for in my past are many, many crimes, and on my tail there's gore. What's never ending? To find the beginning that came before everything Like kids with decoders Discover the wonder in the ordinary We didn't write the rules We just ride the tone part is a preschool song i'm pretty sure i, I this know. was from memory okay well yeah it probably makes sense we we <laughs> did go you did go to preschool in the 90s <laughs> right exactly dinosaurs were big then oh uh, <laughs> like the the funny thing of the song is uh you know the implication of that someone was putting together stegosaurus and they just did it all wrong <laughs> God, why hast thou forsaken me? I, I I'm reading this dinosaur book that is going to be much more revealed in the last episode of this series during the Cretaceous because it's a a guy who's a paleontologist and he discovered these huge theropods that or huge sauropods that don't show up until the Cretaceous. But part of what the book is that he talks about is um like why does it take so long in human history for us to like. Uh, start to classify dinosaur bones because people like must have been digging stuff up for thousands of years before we started classifying them in the 1800s and like mm -hmm. finding this stuff and was it just like the ignorance of the human condition because no none of us like had any concept of evolution or deep time or anything like pretty much everyone on the planet was a young earth creationist um <laughs> So, like, you see this stuff and maybe you your brain doesn't even notice that it's uh, fossilized bone because you don't even have, like, a conceptual reality of what a fossil is. Like, 
you dig it up and it feels like rock to you. So you're like, oh, look, look, look this weird rock. And you, so like um, from like the 1300, like or even earlier, like in in the time of Greece and Aristotle and stuff, you know, there's the 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 common sort of philosophical pondering of how the heck did we get uh, seashells up on the top of the mountains? Because we go up to the top of the mountains to pray and we found like some seashells up there. So like, how the heck does Noah? that happen? Um, but like Aristotle, his whole idea is like, oh, all of speciesization is fixed. Like all of animals and creatures came into being all at once. There's been no like variation before or since. And so like all biology is like fixed biology so what we find when we see like a seashell on the mountain is like a, some sort of symbol like a bigger than ourselves to let us know that there is you know something in control something that is a has a purpose for everyone type of type of thing and like the uh, they had these very specific stones that people would find along the shoreline that they considered that were like good luck stones. I forget exactly what they called them. Uh, it translates to something like a spoon stone or spooned leaf stone because it like looks like a piece of glass, but it's like uh, shaped like a triangle. And mm -hmm. um, it takes, you know, a thousand years before someone's like, hey, wait a second. We've uh, we've accidentally caught some sharks in our fishing line, and uh, these lucky stones that everyone thinks they find from the ocean look a lot like shark teeth. Yeah, <laughs> 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 so it takes like a while for any humans like, oh wait, maybe these are just like actual shark teeth. Like these are from other creatures that are like sharks that maybe aren't around anymore. And what we're finding is like uh, these hardened versions of of other teeth that are washing up on the shore um so it's it's a weird thing to think just the in the human condition aspect of this like how how much change evolutionary change actually has to go in our brain as human beings before we can maybe even have like the thought process that would lead us to the reality of evolution and geologic time and look at the stuff we're finding and that's actually artifacts from a past uh, a prehistoric past that uh, that this planet actually went through yeah it, not even accounting for the actual beginning of understanding fossils like in the 1800s or being like hey this is like a big bone yeah the it's weird to me that there's it how did it happen where humans seem to know that like mastodons used to exist? Like, yeah, yeah, humans were around when mastodons were around and going extinct, but no way that story traveled, right? Were there like mastodon skulls somewhere? Yeah, I would think that you would be finding them. There would be like remains or maybe even like tribal heirlooms or something that uh mm. the original people that like go across the arctic ice bridge into north america like if you slaughtered some woolly mammoths you might keep some of those trophies you know i i don't yeah, know I guess. but the sort of the the way that it works 
is more of the you have the preconceived notion of oh we did the dating in the bible and the bible is the book that we all believe in and it's the you know middle ages and so we all kind of figure that the earth must only be five or six thousand years old and anything that then you find becomes like a victim of the confirmation bias of your pre-existing belief that the world can only be six thousand years old so everything that you look into then becomes you know absorbed into the mythology sort of like we talked about last week so that's why you have like uh the tales of of dragons and stuff in China and Japan. And it's not that there's actual dragons, but the mythology of dragons coincided with finding of these artifacts. And so you just your brain does the easy work of, oh, this this uh this plug fills this hole. Now it makes sense. <laughs> and you just nothing left to see here. We figured it out. <laughs> Yeah, I would imagine finding a fossil of like a dinosaur skull, which I'm sure somebody at some point had to find one before Mm -hmm. understanding any of those things. Like finding a fossil doesn't look that different from like a skull you would find of like a fresh, you know, dead animal or something. So it's your brain does that work where it's like, oh, well, these things must either exist or recently, we just don't see them. So it, you know, you can make that connection where it's uh, it's not like where you can understand that it's millions of years old Yeah, if you find it. It looks like it could be, you know, a couple years old. Yeah, and when, um, like, uh, in this book that I'm reading, the he traces back like the historical record of the griffin you know the mythological character the griffin it's like the it's got the body of a lion and like the head of an eagle and uh like a a tail of of something else and wings and so like the griffin appears all throughout history but it's sort of uh when you look back the griffin is not a pre-existing mythological creature that then you found bones and that verified the existence of the pre-existing mythological creature. It was finding bones of these uh, uh, sauropod dinosaurs, particularly Triceratops, which is a Cretaceous dinosaur, so it's not really one we're going to focus on this week. But in the finding of the first Ceratopsian fossils, that created in the minds of those people who found them the idea that a griffin type creature must have existed when they saw the fossils of a a triceratops they saw a head of an eagle on the body of a lion and that's how they came up with that creature it was not Mm -hmm. a pre-existing creature to finding the fossil it we found the fossil and then we had to make sense of it so we came up with this griffin creature yeah. You know, it's also interesting, too, uh, weren't dragons in, I guess, this is probably more European understanding of the world, but they were, like, thinking that dragons kind of lurked on the edge of the ocean. So I'm wondering, too, if that's where the fossils were mostly found. 
like you know oh, on yeah, yeah. kind like of sediment more of areas the coastal regions yeah that's yeah. the other sort of interesting thing about this is that i think there's a common misconception between like archaeology and paleontology um and if you ever confuse one for the other to like an actual person who is either an archaeologist or a paleontologist they'll get extremely offended <laughs> in both directions um because like archaeologists are like history human history hunters and they're looking for like near history artifacts like from actual human times um whereas paleontologists are pretty much geologists that are finding interesting things in the strata of rock that they study um and so to be a good paleontologist you have to really understand like the, the how fossils are made and this might also be the sort of historical issue with it is that some fossils are very evident like when you're digging up it, or maybe like a storm happens and the beach gets washed away and all of a sudden you see like a blatant fossil like sticking in the side of a cliff and everyone mm. everyone's like oh my gosh that looks like a leg um usually though fossils are not complete they're just fragments of skeletons and all fossilized remains are not equal as far as their like mineral and chemical makeup and all of that depending on where the animal died and then where like maybe floodwaters moved it around on the planet and where eventually the bones came to rest and then became fossilized the hyper-local environment of where that process started really determines the geologic makeup of the fossil. So, like, there's the same types of fossils in, like, northwest or northeast Africa, like in the Sahara Desert, as there are on some of the east coast of America. But if you look at the fossils in north <laughs> northeast africa like they're very sandy and you if you like are excavating it you know with like a paintbrush as you're trying to gradually get it out of the ground it's uh, it can be as delicate as sandstone and if you try to handle it it will just crumble like it'll just crumble in your hands because of the mm. nature of the sediment at which the fossil formed but then you can go to certain parts of like colorado and those things are made out of pyrite. They're basically fossils made out of fool's gold. They're like all crystal and, you know, look like these dark black and gold speckled crystals. Um, and those are like incredibly hard. And then there's some that where the stone is so dense and so hard that forms around the fossil that you it's tough to even identify it as separate from the neighboring rocks that are around it. Like you have to have a really keen eye. So one of the the things that the book talks about is like it takes, you know, a good week or two on any dig for a paleontologist to develop the vision to see the fossils at that specific site because oh, wow. no two sites are the same. You've got to really you, you'll be there for like a week and you'll just look at the ground and you won't really see very much differentiation. But as you like start to understand, oh, I need to be looking for these specific types of mineral formations or these specific types of crystal formations, that's going to be the indicator of where the edges of the fossils are. Then all of a sudden, like 
you see with radar vision, you can see like the skeleton under the ground, but it's not like an instantaneous thing because you were a great paleontologist in Utah. If you go to Argentina, you're not going to be like, oh yeah, there they are. <laughs> like it's going to take you a while to become accustomed to that sort of geologic strata there to understand how the fossils work in that hyper localized region. Uh, yeah, I, I feel like your brain would then just be fixed on that. Cause I, in high school, I learned how to do a Rubik's cube mm-hmm. and then I worked at rave motion pictures, the movie theater. Nice. And each wall was painted or it was like wallpaper, but it was a different color, like green or red, purple. And my brain was just like trying to rearrange <laughs> it. To into that. I only know how to do one thing when there's colored squares. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I was listening to, uh, if you recall that podcast ologies. Yeah. We, we listened to it probably around this time last year for the crow episode. Yeah. Um, so she was talking to the host, Allie Ward, was talking to a paleontologist. I didn't know this. Uh, did you, you know it only cost $10,000 for a paleontology like summer expedition? That seems a little bit more expensive than what I got offered in college. Like one of the cool things about my paleontology class in college was that in if you took it in the spring semester, the, the June following the spring semester, if you paid like an additional 1200 bucks or something, I think it was 1200 you got to go on a expedition for three weeks to Big Bend where they have a bunch of, you know, fossil excavation sites all over the place. And they like fly you in in a helicopter every day to the site and then... It's it's more just about getting a lot of college students on hand to do a bunch of the, you know, labor. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, well, this the guy was saying that it was that was to pay for all of the staff and equipment and everything for just a normal like not to get a helicopter and like fly something if you find it, but it was. Um, I mean, that was fairly cheap in comparison, but the. This guy, too, is also, he works at Keck Medical School, the USC Medical School, mm-hmm. and uh, I think he teaches, like, anatomy. So, in the morning, he's, like, working on human cadavers, <laughs> and then in the <laughs> afternoon, he does his dinosaur research. Oh, my God. Keeping all of the bones of a human being in your head, and then all of the yeah. variety of structure of all the dinosaurs in your head when you want to go be a paleontologist and be like, oh, wait, I can tell by the length of that middle toe bone that this is a, uh, this is a ceratosaur. Like, I know because they have like a specific length of their middle toe bone. <laughs> <laughs> well, he, on a recent expedition, uh, they had a, a follow-up, like an encore episode with him. So I didn't listen to that one. But on the first episode, he was describing that they thought they had found it wasn't a new species of dinosaur but it was like the largest dinosaur that has been discovered and they were working on still doing the dig is going to take like eight years or something and he said that they started by like you know uncovering they uncovered a bone Mm -hmm. and started going through and they're like oh wow we got we found like a huge bone for like a dinosaur and then they kept going and realized, no, we found a small bone for a huge dinosaur. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it was, um, it's like the type of, di- I don't know what period it is. So this is just dinosaur talk in general. <laughs> but 
he said that the this type of dinosaur is proposed to have been like 65 tons and a bull elephant is like three tons yeah <laughs> it's insane yeah the 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 size so we ended last week with the end of the Triassic period there's an extinction event and there were some the beginnings of a few large uh sauropod dinosaurs like you know with the long necks and things but they're not nearly the size that you're talking about yet you know we're still talking like they might be you know 30 feet tall and then you have like of the theropods uh you have um like coelophysis and the little the little bitty theropods that are like the size of chickens those are the ones that survive any extinction event and bridge over into the jurassic period and like the the extinction event between the end of the Triassic and the beginning of the Jurassic is nothing like the previous event that uh, begins the Triassic period. Like there is a very slow climate driven extinction that happens over, you know, a few million years where 25 to 30 percent of living things perish. But this is as a result of the of Pangaea starting to break up and you have a lot of what will become like the trenches in the Atlantic Ocean and things starting to spread apart. And when they do that, they release like volcanic gases into the air. And that starts this very gradual but cha- climate changing event over time um, that will prove costly uh, for some of the early dinosaurs in the Triassic and they won't make it into the Jurassic period. But the Jurassic period brings about a lot of prosperity for dinosaurs that wasn't really available to them in the Triassic. The Jurassic is where they get to be the apex animals on the planet. It's um, a glow up. Yeah, they yeah, exactly. And not not just a glow up, but a blow up. They get huge. Um the Oxygen content on the planet goes way up as a result of this climate changing event. Um, Not only that, but as Pangaea breaks up, instead of having one giant landmass that is a huge desert, arid desert in the middle, now that you're splitting it up into Laurasia and in the north and Guandana in the south, and you have this little donut hole of an ocean starting to open in the middle between the two you're increasing the coastal area around these land masses. So when you do that, um, you are creating uh, atmospheric dynamics on the planet again. You're creating currents in the ocean again. You're creating trade winds again. The, um, the planet now that there's more coastal regions means that the land masses don't have these big arid dry spots in the middle. And now you're getting more storms that move across an entire expanse of a continent and bring water and fresh rain and everything to all those places. So the plants get a lot bigger. The trees explode. Like we're talking trees that are three times the height of the tallest tree that exists now. That's like just how tall trees were at during this period. So things get big all over the place. Things get big. And so there's like a, the evolutionary, battle of sort of finding the niche did uh did you get all these sauropods with super long necks because all the trees got super tall and they were trying to reach their food was it a combination of 
they started getting long necks and trees started getting taller. Uh, they, you know, sort of that's the sort of tough thing that's always to drill down on the evolutionary thing on dinosaurs is because we're talking about like variations that happen over a 10 million year cycle. And we're acting yeah. as if that's like uh, like a week, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and yeah. for us to like fathom like how much variation and things can change over 10 million years is tough, especially when we look at the fossil record. And sometimes those things are like right on top of each other, like right next to each other. Yeah, the the time it takes to it's it's very complicated to conceptualize. But then when you're also adding in the entire world is <laughs> moving apart mm -hmm. and like, you know, just looking at a map where you have you see North America in the Laurasia, then you have sort of a Eurasian split and it's sort of connected shallow seas. Um, but then Gua Gondwana, you got South America, Antarctica, Australia, and then you got like bits of like Africa and uh, it's just, yeah. Madagascar is, is holding on there, but then it starts to like stray away to an island. <laughs> it's something that you you really start to appreciate space. I think most people listening live in have lived in Texas or, you know, everyone's driven for for five hours. And yeah, you feel like that's kind of nothing once you get used to that distance of driving but it's still to imagine that you're going within the same state and then imagining the entire world is, <laughs> you know, shifting around. It's really hard to, to picture, especially when you see images that are trying to capture what dinosaur life was like, but they add all the dinosaurs yeah, into yeah. the all photo. Those and... watercolors that are from like the eighties that, that yeah, I remember yeah. as a kid that were like in the world book, it was like, every dinosaur living at the same time <laughs> <laughs> right and you've got all of the different like fauna and then you know you have one animal scurrying along and then the other dinosaur eating it and like okay well it it probably didn't look like this um i mean still like in the middle of gondwana i'm sure it was i mean there was mountains obviously mm -hmm. um but it was still no way it was this tropical no no you know, you have a lot, and interestingly, one of the reasons why we have a lot of fossils from the Jurassic era, or period, is because of this transition from dry, arid masses to now we're getting more seasonal uh, weather changes and more, you know, types of things that happen on these land masses. So as, you know, things are drying out at the end of the Triassic and the beginning of the Jurassic... There's these like watering holes, you know, like most of the land in, in uh, Pangaea is flat. Like it's a big, flat, flat continent. There's not a bunch of mountain ranges yet. There hasn't been a lot of, you know, subduction of plates that are forcing like plates that are way underground to shoot up into these Matterhorn style peaks. None of that is really in existence on this uh, initial continent. And so you have these low-lying areas that are very hot and dry that collect the water in these pools, like these drinking holes. And so dinosaurs from all over would go to these watering holes, very much like all animals that live in the, in the, in the Serengeti and stuff do now. Like, even if you are 
if you're an elephant and a cheetah and like everyone from every spot on the on the food chain all goes to the watering hole. Um, So as things started drying out, um, the watering hole would get smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller. And the animals would all the dinosaurs would all still go to that one watering hole that they all knew. And one thing that happens is it dries out on the surface first because it's flat. And so you get this like six inches of really dry, cracked desert land. But underneath that six inches is like soupy, sticky mud. And you get these 20 ton animals walking out onto what they think is dry, arid, stable ground. And all of a sudden they punch through that six inches of dry layer and then they're stuck in the sticky mud and it's like quicksand. So they're just stuck there. And then like smaller dinosaurs that won't break through that come and like scavenge on their carcasses. Um, And so you end up with like lots of bones, lots of dead dinosaurs like scattered around where these watering holes would be. And then as the weather starts to change and you start to get more fresh water because there's more coastal regions, you get lots of flash flooding all over the place. And the flash floods then pick up all the, you know, thousands of year old carcasses of all these dinosaurs that are in these low lying dry areas and just scramble all the bones together in these big washouts. And then they end up at these lower, uh, lower levels where the water dumps out and, uh, paleontologists find these like sort of graveyards that are full of tons of different types of species, all mangled and on top of each other. And you have to like pull, untangle this whole thing in order to figure out what animals were there. And they're all from different time periods. Um, so the reason why we have a lot of the fossil record that we do is specifically because of how this uh, continental drift happens and the resulting of the dinosaurs trying to survive when the when things get really dicey there at the end of the Triassic before the Jurassic starts. And into the Jurassic, I had no clue about the sea level rise and change, but it was <laughs> insane mm-hmm. throughout the entire time. It was like they designate, you know, the different when you look at the Jurassic period, there are so many different time designations yeah. too. Um, I assume it's probably they base it off of changes in climate, right? Like the sea level rise and everything. Yeah, I think I think it's that. And then uh, there's, I think there might be something with different like minor volcanic events during the period that okay. like give you certain layers inside of the geologic record that you're like, okay, this is when this was going off in the Northern hemisphere, but it's not like, they're not like huge extinction level events that like wipe out, you know, half the species on the planet type of deals. Yeah. Well, I loved reading about Europe, how like it was an archipelago essentially with just pretty big islands like France, Spain, and Germany and Great Britain were big islands. Scandinavia, just one circular island. Um, But the sea level change would go up to, I think at the peak, it went 140 meters above present sea level. Yeah. There's no ice caps. (laughs) There's no ice caps on either pole. (laughs) Both poles are like in the 70s and 80s every day. (laughs) I mean, how many... 
how many meters above sea level is Dallas? Uh, I meters be like two hundred. It's it's a little under six hundred feet above sea level, on average. I mean, so your Dallas becomes like thirty minute drive to the beach. Oh yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> like if you ever, um, like as you drive, like Dallas is a little high point. Mm-hmm. And then all of West Texas is a lot higher in elevation. So if you're like ever take the drive from like Dallas and you're driving out towards El Paso, you gain an elevation, I think it's like 2000 feet or something like that. Oh, wow. Um, so like you get not great gas mileage going West, but when you're coming back, <laughs> you're like, wow, I filled up my car like one fewer time coming back. Cause you're like just basically coasting downhill the whole way. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's how they get That's you too. It was all in those little and, towns, and like um, uh, the mountains that are out there in West Texas, uh, the Guadalupe Mountain Range, like that huge mountain was just an island sitting in the middle of the ocean. That's awesome. <laughs> um, do they have any fossils there that you know of? Oh yeah, like um through there they do there's stuff all in the Big Bend region at those mountains cuz like like it was similar to Europe there were like little tiny islands all around that part of the country cuz it's sort of the uh the bottom the most southern edge of any sort of mountainous region before you start up into the Rockies. So that's where um when I was in paleontology class that's where we were going to go do our dig. Oh, gotcha. Um, let's see. Well, do you want to jump into dinosaurs? Yeah. So let's start with what you were just talking about with Europe, because there you go, Justin. Uh, starting at thirty-three. Minutes. We already we already mentioned a lot of dinosaurs. Yeah. Um, Archaeopteryx, and I don't know if this one was one of the coolest ones that I learned about. I remember learning about as a kid. Or I guess I really wasn't a kid when I learned about... I was more like high school, about to go into college when everyone was talking about Archaeopteryx more. Um, It is a dinosaur that's about the size of a crow. And it has fully formed flight feathers. Not just the down insulating feathers, but fully formed feathers for flight. In fact, like the first... um, fossil of Archaeopteryx was just a single feather um, at like a, an actual pronounced feather the same type of feather that you would find if you pulled out a feather from a crow or a raven Wow! and um, so it was found in Germany and most of the most of the specimens are found in Germany and France where like you said it was a bunch of little scattered islands at the time and this is thought to be the first known um, flying dinosaur that actually could fly. And it is from the Jurassic period. Um, it shares a lot in common with modern day birds. Um, so it's thought to be maybe the initial, the, the first avian bird dinosaur. Um, but like, like anything from any of the dinosaur times, we're... There's lots of uh, trying to figure things out based upon very limited pieces of information. So you're having to gather little bits of information from lots of sources in order to try to create a bigger picture of what's going on. The, uh, the interesting thing about them is 
one, they're small, but two, they, while they have fully formed flight feathers, they also still have like hand claws on the ends of their arms where the feathers extend that they can still use to lash and like catch things and put, pull fish to their mouths or whatever. And kind of like climb trees too, right? Yeah. Climb trees. And they also have the extended middle toe on their feet like uh, we see on Velociraptor in the Jurassic Park movies that is specific for, you know, uh, digging in when you're hanging on the side of a creature to like rake down its stomach and get a quick kill like that way. Um, So even though it's small, it's pretty fearsome. It doesn't have a beak like um, like birds do. It still has a jaw like a like a theropod with teeth and everything inside of it with serrated teeth but the sort of the most interesting factoid is you get charles darwin leaving on the beagle and he when he embarks on his his voyage to uh to where he would discover the origin of the species he embarks being a young earth creationist like that's his idea he thinks the world is six thousand years old and he's kind of going around for proof of that, you know, going to the Galapagos and going uh, and the finches and everything. He realized, oh, there's evolution, there's deep time, all of this stuff. And because of that, we should be able to find evidence of some of these deep time things. Origin of the Species comes out. Two days later, they find the first fossil of Archaeopteryx in Germany. <laughs> After it being published? Yeah, two days after the book is published is when they find the fossilized remains of the flying dinosaur Archaeopteryx in, in Germany. <laughs> so it's it's almost like the the world was finally ready to know know the truth of its history. So it, it <laughs> no, no, got God revealed. was this was a planned hit <laughs> from God to try and make sure you didn't buy the book. Yeah, yeah, or that's what it was. It was it was like, yeah, seems a little too convenient. You guys discovered some dinosaur bones that prove your evolutionary theory 2 days after you published the book on evolution. Huh. Yeah. Maybe maybe you planted those bones there, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's wild. I do love the name the Beagle for a ship too. Yeah. <laughs> More dog named ships. Yeah, so Archaeopteryx, cool um, avian dinosaur that flew, um, and it exists into uh, the Cretaceous, and it, it its lineage is the dinosaurs that we see as birds today, and that that's like another sort of um, taxonomical clarification thing. Like we call them birds, but. They are dinosaurs. They're not descendants of dinosaurs. They're not ancestors of dinosaurs. They are dinosaurs the same way we are primates. There's not like mm-hmm. they're not like some like offshoot. They are everything that makes a bird a bird is everything that makes a dinosaur a dinosaur. So they are dinosaurs. There's not mm-hmm. they're not slightly slight variations of dinosaurs. They are dinosaurs. Yeah, I I was reading an art, uh, I guess like a journal article talking about paravian dinosaurs too. Um, it was kind of interesting because they were also predicting like the the way that I guess I don't know if it's exactly the Archaeopteryx or similar paravian dinosaurs, 
but their studies were showing that the the arm like foldability was still not to the same degree that like a bird's foldability mm-hmm. is today um but they were comparing it to all of the other dinosaurs i guess paravian and then the avian dinosaurs avial lens or whatever yeah yeah they got too many names i swear <laughs> to god hey <laughs> but 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 at least most of them are rooted in greek <laughs> <laughs> which yeah helps me out a ton having taken two semesters <laughs> Um, but the, the forelimb like folding capability, they're predicting that it had no less than 90 degrees of folding. So while these, you know, birds, these dinosaurs had these feathers for flight, they were still like out (laughs) their arms were like still you know yeah 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 i, I don't know how to describe it but they're, it's... they're they're more like superman gliding they they have the power to run and they have the power to fly on their own without just having to like jump out of a tall tree to get some air they're not like mm-hmm. flying squirrels but they don't i i would say that they don't necessarily maybe have the same sort of soaring or migratory power that like we see in modern birds yeah but it's i find it very cool because i think the way that it's envisioned is you're like oh we had they looked like dinosaurs i guess in the face but they were birds at the time but with this type of study you can see the evolution take place Mm -hmm. which again like i was saying last week it was never taught to me as a story of evolution. Wonder why in Texas. <laughs> um, but it it certainly helps you see the picture that these things, you know, even hearing, okay, they, cr- they climbed up into trees. They didn't like flap their way up into a tree. Uh, it's kind of cool because then you can start to see how, all right, before these existed, they were developing feathers, but that didn't mean they developed them because they wanted to fly. Yeah. It 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 works all together and over this long period of time. Uh and so at this time, you know, you can say all you want they they were dinosaurs. They looked like dinosaurs with feathers. But until you start to imagine like bone positioning, it's kind of hard to like you would just imagine a, a more fierce chicken. Yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Put some teeth on that chicken, which mm-hmm. they've done. This has actually been done. We'll talk about that next week. I got a whole bunch on uh re-engineering birds back into dinosaurs and the different genetics that people have already tried <laughs> and like <laughs> recreated the full sectional tail on a chicken of a of like a dinosaur type segmented tail on a chicken. Are there photos of this? Yeah, you can do it. They uh, just, you know, it's basically like uh, you figure out what the gene map is and then you turn off some of the current ones and you turn back on some of the old baggage ones that are holdovers and you can make a chicken have serrated teeth. Hmm. It's pretty crazy. And there's like a whole thought um, that, or there was a whole project of basically if you could do it to like a ostrich, could you take an ostrich and with enough genetic modification turn it back into like one of the last known theropod 
like dinosaurs type of thing? I would not like to find out. <laughs> That's where we get into the real Jurassic Park uh, science. <laughs> but so speaking in the Jurassic period here um, means that we are not going to talk about Tyrannosaurus Rex. Didn't exist yet. We're not going to talk about Triceratops. Didn't didn't exist yet. We're not going to talk about Velociraptor. Wasn't a Jurassic dinosaur. We're not. Gonna- and also didn't look like the one in the movie. Right, right. So... All, the the most famous dinosaurs from Jurassic Park, none of them existed in, <laughs> in the Jurassic period. They all were around in the 80 million years after the Jurassic period. My sister was telling me, too, because she recently watched Jurassic Park, and uh, which I haven't seen in years. Do they complain about the time difference? Like She said that at some point someone's like, none of these animals existed together, but you're putting them all in the same area. Uh, there's like, like the, com- the there's the complaint of, of um of uh you know T Rex doesn't want to be fed he wants to hunt and then the uh, the complaint of you you just uh, you're just gonna throw all this in here and expect it to all go hunky dory when you have when none of these things have been alive for sixty five million years and we're gonna mm-hmm. just expect it all to be cool <laughs> and everything's gonna go <laughs> fine. <laughs> yeah, I mean, what would happen if you put. And why did they go with Jurassic Park as the name? It is the coolest sounding yeah, Crita- dinosaur Cretaceous period. Yeah, Cretaceous Park doesn't sound as cool. <laughs> You're like, all right, where's the where's these crabs? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, Jurassic Park definitely sounds cooler. And the most Jurassic of the Jurassic Park moments is when they pull up off the helicopter and they get in the Jeep and Dr. Grant stops the Jeep because they get the site for the full time of a full blown brachiosaur and that's awesome like that's like the first dinosaur you see in Jurassic Park I mean you get the implication of the raptors at the beginning but they don't really show it to you you know when the guy like gets sucked into the raptor cage and they're all like shoot up um, but then you know the first real dinosaurs you see are the brachiosaurs and that's like crazy because the scale is accurate, you know, what they would be to a human and how tall they are and how slow they move. And the fact that they went out of their way to do a brachiosaur, which is kind of a very unique sauropod, especially for the Jurassic period. Like brachiosaurs, while they did get really long and they had those like nose crests on the top of their head, they're also one of the few sauropods where the front legs are much longer than the back legs. Like most of the other sauropods with the long necks, the other giant sauropods, they either have sort of equally linked legs or their hind legs are much longer than their forelegs. And Brachiosaur is sort of like a mirror image of the rest of the sauropods, Um, Mm. which, you know, there's a lot of sort of speculation as to why that they evolved that way. It could be that it made it easier for them to haunch up on their back legs to reach stuff that was even higher than their neck could reach. If they had like shorter, stubbier back legs, it made their center of gravity lower if they wanted to rear up. And especially if they were like defending their young from predators, because like a predator probably wouldn't go try to take on a brachiosaur because that's just way too huge for just some. Because also, like the other. Um, the theropod carnivores that are around this time are not T-Rex. There's a couple big ones that may be bigger than T-Rex, but they're not as advanced of killing machines as T-Rex eventually becomes. And so they're not really going to 
I, I don't think that their their main diet is trying to take on these huge sauropods. But all the sauropods lay eggs, and their babies are really tiny. <laughs> so uh, if you're if you're a clever enough uh, scavenger or carnivore, you're trying to get those babies all the time. And it would be a big advantage to a brachiosaur over another type of sauropod if they could rear up on their back shorter legs and then stomp down with like all 30 tons with those two front legs in front of anything. Um, and so, I mean, that there's no way that any dinosaur would survive getting stomped on like that. And I think that's just like the right. best, that's probably the best sort of defense tactic for how that body shape ends up the way it is. Yeah, that makes sense. I can't remember exactly the point that they were trying to make. Can't remember if they were talking about if myelin didn't exist on the nerve cells or just talking about the sheer scale of a brachiosaurus, but pretend with me for a minute that I do remember. <laughs> uh, I think it was saying the in one of my classes, they were talking about the speed at which nerves sent signals, especially back then. Mm -hmm things have you know advanced and i think they were saying that if a brachiosaurus was bit on its tail it would take like three seconds for that signal to travel to their brain and then another three seconds for it to travel back to the oh, tail yeah? in order to like move it so it's like a six second delay mm -hmm. um so you just imagine the sheer size of this thing I wonder uh, if they you know, have a thing like we do when we talked about like reflexes where there's like the sort of uh, yeah transfer station like at the base of your spine where, you know, it, that signal doesn't have to go all the way to your brain in order for you to kick your leg back. You just, you know, to swing your tail back when you, when it gets hit before yeah. your brain even registers that your tail got bit type of thing. That, that may have been the point. Uh, they may have been saying like, you know, that's sort of why reflexes became beneficial but i can't remember though if they were talking if they were saying like imagine if you will um because i don't know if dinosaurs had reflexes i don't know i mean i you would kind of think that they would because the brain the brain casing that all these dinosaurs have is basically just the primitive elements of what like our brain is it's just like the amygdala and just the limbic system and not really yeah. much else um so maybe if that goes directly to those more primitive sort of neurological systems yeah i should i should look up when reflexes because if you look up reflexes i'm pretty sure fish have them which would mean nearly every living thing has them which means they developed before the divergence of uh everything so yeah they probably had them i mean maybe they were rudimentary too mm -hmm. uh, but yeah it's it's kind of like that to imagine i step on attack and it immediately hurts to being large enough that it would take me six seconds to no longer have pressure on the tack <laughs> yeah yeah well and and i mean that would line up too because their movement is incredibly slow right. now for a long time you know people were unsure of how the heck did these things even like ambulate or move across the ground or even stand because 
not very many. There wasn't much understanding of how something could get that massive and not collapse under its own weight. Um, right. There is, you know, a limit at which like mammals can grow um, on on our current planet. Like the elephant is kind of the limit unless you're going to live in the ocean and then you could become a blue whale. But like the atmospheric conditions of living in water are much different than the atmospheric conditions of living on land. And the way that our bones work is that our bones are incredibly dense and they are utilized as like the scaffolding inside of our fleshy body to maintain posture and keep it going. Dinosaur bones are not dense like mammal bones. And this is another thing that is definitely uh, points to their bird lineage. Um, they're not hollow like the legs of a current bird now. That's not the way they were. But what they do have is the entire skeleton. We, t we mentioned this a little bit last week, but the entire skeleton um, contributes to the respiratory system. So not just lungs, but you have these passageways inside of your bones for air to be taken in and exhaled. Two, you also have extra air sacs throughout your body. Two primary ones, but also little small ones that line up along the spine. And they can see that even in like these huge sauropod dinosaurs, you can see the little pocket in each little um, spinal segment where the little air sac would attach. And that allowed for them to get to these massive sizes without collapsing under the weight. They had this extra sort of support structure inside of the bones. The bones were not adding to the uh, rigidity and eventual like heaviness of the structure. So they were able to maintain these massive sizes. And then for like the big sauropods, they could grow their neck that long and they could grow their tail that long without having to drag it on the ground everywhere with them because the the structure was supported by all these little airbags that were going throughout their skeleton. So they were just like a, a blow-up doll? <laughs> kind of like a blow-up doll. Or like more like, a, you remember um, Pimp My Ride on MTV? Yeah. And they would always like put those little hydraulic baggies all over the car to like raise up a TV out of the console or like jack up mm. the back end of the car, you know, to put it on a lift. So it was, it's kind of, it's, I, I think of it more like that. Like you had all these little <laughs> hydraulic airbags all over the place that could be filled up every single time you would take a breath in. And those things, when expanded, supported the structure of your body. So this was no like oxygen exchange sort of mechanism as it seems to be solely support based. It's support based, like but structure. the oxygen exchange does matter too, because they don't the it's much easier to breathe um, and you can breathe while you're eating and your whole because your whole body is breathing. Like you're not just filling these air sacs in your chest over and over again. So the um amount of caloric intake it takes to just inflate your lungs is much less because your whole body is kind of a lung. Um, so it means that you can get bigger because you're not spending all of your calories just to be able to breathe, just to be able to live. Like your body is doing a lot extra work to make you more efficient when it comes to your calorie usage. Interesting. Uh, are these the, the big... Like big necked ones, are these the ornithischians? 
No, the Ornithischians are the Stegosaurus and uh, the duck-billed dinosaurs that are from the uh, late Jurassic and early Cretaceous. Um, those dinosaurs go extinct. Um, they don't stick with us. Um, the Saurischians are the ones that turn into the um, sauropods and theropods. And the sauropods are the big four-legged dinosaurs. Um, and then you have the theropods, which are the two-legged dinosaurs. And then the theropods eventually become birds. Wait, so the the Ornithischians don't make it into the Jurassic? Uh, no, they're in the Jurassic. Oh, they're, okay. they're Stegosaurus and stuff, but they don't, uh, they don't make it much uh, past the beginning of the Cretaceous. Like, mm. Stegosaurus is not around simultaneously with T-Rex. They're yeah, we're, millions of, they're like 40 million years apart. Or no, even more than that, like this? 100 million years apart. Yeah, that we're closer to T-Rex in time than T-Rex is to Stegosaurus. Yeah. T- <laughs> T-Rex is closer to using an iPhone than he ever was to eating a Stegosaurus. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> That's, which is just a, a good example of how to really understand deep time, like... Especially next week, we're going to be talking about stuff that just happened 65 million years ago. And like this period of the Jurassic <laughs> is that long. So, <laughs> like, um, there's plenty of, uh, of dinosaurs that are never make it to the next level when, when everyone really like falls in love with dinosaurs because we get to see T Rex and Triceratops and all, all the famous ones. <laughs> Yeah, I, I kind of liked the dinosaurs of this time. You didn't have as many carnivores. I was not, I, I understand that a lot of people love raptors and love the, like even this paleontologist, he's like, oh, I loved a dinosaur. They're just being assassin. I'm like, that's not nice. Let's get some, <laughs> let's get some herbivores. Um, but that was also something that I found interesting is these like ornithischians that developed um named so because they're bird hipped no relation to birds right yeah this this is another thing with <laughs> with that i learned in the paleontology class is like there's a lot of naming conventions that started at a certain time and then we've discovered a lot of things that makes those naming conventions maybe not intuitive anymore but we already <laughs> started the naming conventions so we're not going back we're not turning the ship around and starting over <laughs> can you imagine like Everyone's been at Thanksgiving with their racist uncle, but can you imagine the the paleontologist uncle that's just pissed off that you're trying to tell him that the name ornithician doesn't work anymore? <laughs> mm, we having some ornithician turkey today? And you're like, no, we're not. We're not. <laughs> uh, so the, the pubis in these animals, part of the pelvic structure, uh, started facing instead of down into the front it was down into the back Mm -hmm. much like the jfk trial yeah and they gained a much larger like digestive cavity Mm -hmm. which is why i say you know let's bring in the herbivores because you you know as we've spoken about plants are hard to digest especially if you don't have an enzyme that will immediately break down the cell wall or like that's why or like multiple stomachs like a cow <laughs> right yeah that's why if humans eat like a salad the 
the lettuce is giving you very little nutritional value. It's called roughage because it essentially it just goes by and scrapes your intestines out mm-hmm. the entire way. Like broccoli. Yes. Um, so it's very difficult to get nutrients from. That's why we cook a lot of veggies that we're actually trying to get nutritional value out of because that helps break down the cell wall. To get to the good stuff. Mm-hmm. But these these dinosaurs were able to develop these massive digestive systems and their teeth were pretty interesting that they, they started to evolve like some lineages did evolve jaws with dozens of close set rows of teeth. And the enamel was more developed on the inside and outside. But as the teeth came into use, the side with the inner enamel was worn down and kind of flattened. And these dinosaurs used that as like a grinding Mm. sort of surface. So they would... Chew the cud. Yeah, exactly. Which helps break it down. Um, And that's, you know, whenever you see a cow eat, that kind of motion where they're going almost side to side in a circular pattern is the grinding down of the plant material. Yet they still need four stomachs after that yeah. to break it down. <laughs> to find to get the nutritional value. It's it's cool because it's weird. The the thing with the most energy on earth is the hardest to break down. Uh cuz the way that energy works as far as the food chain goes, you lose I can't remember is it I think it's like 90% each step that you go. Yeah. And like uh, photosynthesis is not very efficient. <laughs> if you're talking yeah, about plant energy. <laughs> <laughs> but you still, the energy stored in a plant is like the maximum amount of energy you could get per yeah uh, per pound of thing to eat. And then the thing that eats the plant, you only get, they only get, 10% of that energy right. and then the thing that eats that thing only gets 10% of that energy. Um that's why I need a double cheeseburger. <laughs> right, right. Well, yeah, you, you, by by the time the 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 animal eats the plant, it's only getting, you know, a fraction of 1% of the energy from the sun that the plant originally was getting baked with. Mm-hmm. If we could only just make our body out of like solar panels and just have the sun give us direct energy, <laughs> it would be great but we got we got to rely on these stupid animals to put it into a form that that we can then eat and then get the get the residual leftover scraps of energy left from the initial sun sounds like you're talking about a matrix situation yeah it's kind of the way it is you know <laughs> uh so i i just found that kind of stuff fascinating that you also get these massive sizes uh, because of the oxygen concentration, but also the energy that they're consuming mm-hmm. because they're able to eat plants and going from, you know, and they got to eat like sort of 800 pounds of plant matter a day type of eating plants. But when you're this, when you're 800 pounds or thir- sorry. yeah, <laughs> eating your body weight in plants, uh, whenever you're 30 tons, it's kind of. I don't know how much it's right, right. Yeah, yeah. You're having to, you're having to make like the plants got to be big, one, because they're mm-hmm. not. Stegosaurus isn't getting by by just uh, grazing on the grasslands like a buffalo does. Like that's n- not enough grasslands to survive. 
It's yeah. got to be big, thick, like jungly type of like plant leaves and stuff like that. And they got to be able to get to certain plants that all of the much more abundant smaller dinosaurs can't get to. Because if they're mm -hmm. trying to compete with all the smaller dinosaurs and little mammals and everything else that's on the forest floor for all those grazing scraps, they're, they're not going to have a chance. They have to be able to reach up high, which is one of the, like, when they originally discovered Stegosaurus, because of its hip location and how small its front legs were, they thought that it was a bipedal dinosaur. They thought that it must be a bipedal dinosaur that's reaching up to get the stuff, even though it didn't have, like, a long neck like a brontosaurus or a, or a sauropod. It had... The, the way that its leg structure was made everyone think that, oh, man, maybe it can haunch up. But then when they realized there was no real way for its hips to rotate in a matter that could get it to be upright, then it was more, okay, it's got to be quadrupedal, and it's kind of leaning down on these little stubby short legs all the time. But it's still a huge dinosaur. Like, it's not yeah. like... Uh, it's still bigger than a than a bus <laughs> you know it's like yeah. like it's hip height some like some of the larger ones hip height is like 20 feet 25 feet tall so huge still huge dinosaurs so not really having to compete with the uh the tiny little herbivores that are all over the ground how fast could they move because like the spikes on the tail is one thing but Okay, if we brought dinosaurs back for, like, a fight club, would it be the most boring thing on ESPN? Like, how slow would they be moving? It'd be tough because, like, do, like I assume that there were, like, fights between like dinosaurs. But I mm -hmm. think most of the time it's like, uh, you know, watching a, a lion take down a zebra type of thing. You know, it's not much of a fight as much as like so, there was the slowest one in the herd and then the the lion took that one down type of thing and the rest of the herd gets away. But say we've got like UFC one rules <laughs> and we can just put whichever ones together we want. Would a stegosaurus actually be able to take on like say you you put an Archaeopteryx in there? Well, well, an Archaeopteryx is like six inches long <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> yeah. that's it's what i'm not, saying not gonna be a good battle <laughs> but, but no way the stegosaurus could knock it off right <laughs> right but the archaeopteryx probably has no even its big toe claw probably can't puncture any of the skin on the stegosaurus like it there there is evidence of an allosaurus who has like this puncture right in the back, right in its back above its hip. And when they found it, they they knew that it had been killed by this wound because it was like massive. It like went down and scarred up the bone all the way down into the dinosaur. And they could they didn't know if like did it fall on something? Did it what happened? And when they measured it up to the fossilized remains of a stegosaurus spike on its tail it fit perfect like huh. uh, it was a situation probably where uh, an allosaurus was looking for a meal and he got just a little bit too close and at the wrong angle and then the tail got him and that's that was it that was it for that allosaurus the thagomizer yeah 
then there's like a stegosaurus, you know, that I guess no one really knows exactly what like the plates were for and the spikes. Obviously, we have now fossilized evidence that a spike was used to kill another dinosaur, whether that was in, you know, defense of a youngling or in defense of its own life or whatever. Um, no one knows. But there is some interesting evidence with the skeletal structure of the stegosaurus that the plates along its back, um, a lot of people thought maybe those are just ornamental there for like show or whatever mating, but they would have had like a horn type of, uh, structure that would go around whatever that the bony plate root that was left in the fossilized record. So there would even be like another sort of, a harder horn type of material that would go around that plate and they also had the ability from their shoulder movement to essentially if like they were broadside with a di- with a carnivore dinosaur in a battle they could turn to their side and shift their shoulders so it would look like all of their plates were on one side of their body and pointing directly at the predator and hmm. when they were covered with this um, harder horn material um, they would also be very sharp on the ends of the plates where like the blade edge of the plate would be formed so if if a carnivore would try to attack it from that angle like the mouth would not be able to reach it um, or the claws would not be able to reach it they'd have to get through these plates that are now instead of being like vertical have now been turned horizontal and facing the oncoming attacker and if the there would also be like the moment at which a carnivore could get too close to a broadside stegosaurus and that's when like the tail would be a lethal weapon. Like if you just got too close to the hip of the stegosaurus, it would get you. Um, So evolutionarily, I would think that it's probably a defensive characteristic, but it's probably also used as ornamentation for mating and also, you know, uh, competition amongst other other in your own groups, kind of like bighorn sheep and that type of stuff. Yeah, I mean, the the mating aspect of it certainly makes sense because showing off, hey, I have good genetics that is very advantageous to survival. Look at all these spikes. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, I, I do really like the armed dinosaurs that came about during this time. The Ankylosaurus? The, one the, with the ankylosaurus, the one with the big club on the end of its tail, and it's covered like looks like an armadillo covered with little spikes all around it. <laughs> yeah, uh, another one that looks like that one, the shamosaurus, mm-hmm. which sounds like uh, they just they just thought it was an ankylosaurus and then thought it was a sham trial or something. <laughs> I don't know. Um, but there's so many different types of like plate patterns too. Yeah, like there's there's some that just like the Kentrosaurus just have spikes like the entire like they and they got spikes coming out of their shoulders. Yeah. Um so why like why have I never heard of these? <laughs> Cuz they're they're just as cool as a Stegosaurus. And I th- I think some of the spike characteristics I have now in like recent paleontological uh research 
been discovered to be a sort of common trait for a lot of dinosaurs, especially herbivores, mm. but a lot of other carnivores had these sort of ornamental spikes going down their spine, uh, going along the backside of their arm, around their elbows, um, all along their heads. But just they're just not very preserved in the fossil record. But as they've unearthed different types of fossils um, uh, preserved in different environments, like now there's there's no doubt that like these large sauropods like Brachiosaurus and um, Apollosaurus and uh, uh, Brontosaurus had like long ridges of spikes that went all the way from the top of their head all the way to the tip of their tail that go all the way down their back. And they might have had more like other spikes that stuck out from other parts of their body on their sides or on their front limbs that just, they were uh, sort of like vestigial fingernails or something, you know. they mm. th So they wouldn't have survived necessarily in the fossil record. Um but there's like little spots on certain bones that are like little spongy sort of nubby deposits, which would be like where the veins would have gone into this little claw or this little spike that would be on the outside of the body to give it a little bit of uh, blood flow. So they know that from those spots, especially comparing them to like modern day animals that's like where those thing those horns and spikes and things will appear on the outside of the body as well just reminds me of uh in the third grade when me and my friends came up with our own pokemon characters <laughs> yeah <laughs> like just to put spikes all over it yeah. you know <laughs> its defense is through the roof <laughs> and then give it spikes it can throw that's that's really kind of the interesting thing because we have like mammals of like porcupine porcupines and other that are like quilled mammals that can like even shoot their quills type of thing and so i wonder if some of these types of things were also like the same way that the theropod dinosaur uh, carnivores like they had like shark teeth just like the the teeth were constantly replenished even if it wasn't like they lost the tooth in a in a battle or eating like the second a tooth started to become dull it like fell out and they got a new one um so i wonder if some of these spikes and plates and armaments that were on some of these dinosaurs were things that they could release like they could let they could let the spike go if uh if they had yeah. to attack uh, or if they had to defend themselves and then that uh, predator had to run off with a big spike stuck in its side type of thing. Yeah, like a bee. Yeah. And then and then the stegosaurus died because its stinger fell <laughs> 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 yeah, But that venom. Yeah. So, um, yeah, go keep going. No, I was, I was going to change topic. All right. Um, the other the other two dinosaurs that I really focused on for this period were Allosaurus and Ceratosaurus. And these were the two apex predators of the Jurassic period. The precursors to T-Rex, although they're not Tyrannosaurs, they are theropods that have very similar characteristics to T-Rex. And you can see some of what happens over, you know, 50 million years of evolution from these apex predators and then when we get to t-rex and then raptors like the advancements that happen from the evolutionary and behavioral characteristics of those animals so like ceratosaurus 
is sort of the first apex bipedal predator that is of pretty large size. And it has these horned, um, you know, sort of ornamental horns and bumps all on the front of its face um, that kind of will block any of its binocular vision if it even had any because its eyes are very much set to the side of its head and pointing, you know, out to the side. And it also has a very small orbital cavity in its brain. So that's the other cool thing about paleontology now is that the first thing they do is CT scan everything and then you can see like kind of what the brain cavity is and the shape of the brain cavity and how big was the how big was the amygdala and the hypothalamus and you can see all that stuff because there's an actual imprint of what the brain was inside <laughs> inside of that skull. Um, so the idea being that Ceratosaurus, the horn on the front of its head, might have been used as like a battering ram, sort of like a bighorn sheep or something. But it probably also, it might have had, instead of being a hard horn attached to the bony ridges on its skull, it might have been more like a turkey, where you had this very fleshy, veiny uh, growth that just came out and it was all ornamental and it hung over its nose and around its head and so like the males would be the one that had this ornamentation and the females would not have the ornamentation that's the other thing is it's tough to tell female versus male dinosaurs um and this has been a sort of an issue because you don't really preserve any of the sex organs of dinosaurs we don't really know like did it's been been a big topic on the hang zone this week about dino penises and we just don't know we don't know like how big a dino penis was we don't know if it was like just dragging around between their legs or if it was like a little any type of thing <laughs> we we just don't know <laughs> are you going to do a guess spot maybe yeah maybe uh maybe they were like duck penises where they're like corkscrewed you know and they're real long when they stick out right um anyway uh so Ceratosaurus, bipedal dinosaur, short arms, like kind of like a T-Rex, but not as short and useless as a T-Rex arms. It has four full claws on each hand, and the middle finger is pretty long, and the claw on the middle finger is badass. So it's to the point where it could still slash with its front arms and do some damage or jump and then use those two big claws on its hands to hold on to the back of something while it would just kick with its back legs until you brought the thing down. <laughs> Downside for Ceratosaurus is that didn't really have binocular vision, so it had no depth perception. So whenever it's facing off with a prey or a uh, competitor, it's having to do like you see in some birds and lizards that don't have binocular vision where it's like looking at, you know, looking at you profile one way and then it spins around the other way and looks at you profile the other way and would have to like keep doing this sort of profile dance to try to size up what it was going to do and how it's going to kill you so the idea being that it's probably not a chase and hunt predator like because of its limited depth perception it's probably more of an ambush predator it waits and then you know jumps out and grabs you and they it seems that they probably hunted in pairs or in packs to try to take advantage of the ambush um tactic do any lizards currently set traps mm, that's a good or question. reptiles i guess because i'm wondering I mean, like, like a chameleon i guess is kind of a trap in and of itself right so i'm trying to figure out like 
if it was an ambush predator, I wonder what sort of ambush tactics evolved. Yeah. You know, like waiting in a bush is not too complicated. Um, it works. So they, not that it needs to develop anything, but a lot of paleontologists, when it comes to these type of behaviors, compare them to the large cats in the jungles and in Africa. So like mm. t- the way that tigers work, uh, or even the way that like, um, uh, mountain lions and, uh, some smaller cat species work where they do have sort of ambush type of characteristics where the biggest, baddest of the group lies in wait. And then you get a couple of the youngsters to go and cause a ruckus and, you know, cause the herd to dissipate and all freak out. And then when one gets corralled into the right spot, then the, then the badass of the group, you know, takes that one down. Isn't it insane that that is a learned trait (laughs) that like humans had too? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's it's wild how hunting is essentially the same. Well, and for- that those very non uh, human consciousness level operations of our brains mm-hmm. like exist in the most primitive functionality of the most primitive brain that you can find. Like, it's not a this sort of communicative uh, social behavior is a survival trait that goes back way beyond like human communication or our like self-awareness or (laughs) or any of those types of things it's it's like a and like i don't know if if dinosaurs even had a sense of self like i don't even know if like some animals today have like a sense of self versus a sense of a collective if they're in in their their group and yet mm. we take all of that for granted because we think like, oh, you could only learn how to cooperate once you understand yourself as an individual and then you can learn how to cooperate with others. Yeah, we've already covered the French Revolution. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so um, Ceratosaurus is the apex predator through like the mid Jurassic and he hangs on into the late Jurassic too, but he gets um, supplanted as the apex predator by Allosaurus. And Allosaurus was my favorite dinosaur growing up. Um, everyone else liked T-Rex, but I was the uh, contrarian who was like, guys, Allosaurus is way cooler. Almost as big as T-Rex, the- but guess what? It actually had big, muscly arms that were long. It didn't have these little, you know, puny arms. Um, and Allosaurus only had three claws on each on each arm, but they were long, and they ha- he had very defined, like, shoulders, biceps forearms wrists um he could he couldn't reach his own mouth with food like if he held it and brought it up to his mouth he couldn't reach it but they were definitely long enough to be out in front of him to use as weapons and to grab on and to hold the prey that he was then going to bite with his teeth um allosaurus is a little bit more advanced evolutionarily than ceratosaurus his eyes are a little bit more forward facing so he has better vision still not a hugely developed um optical brain system but a little bit more advanced than ceratosaurus um interesting tidbit though they the way that we talked about how hearing back in our senses series was is about just the is like the sense of touch of pressure waves 
um, they had organs in their feet that were tied to their sense of hearing that would be in their ears and how their brain perceived sound. Oh, so like vibrations in the ground? Yeah, so them using the vibrations in the ground could tell them where their prey was because a sauropod or a stegosaurus or something walking like a mile away, they could feel in in the ground. And that was, they kind of had ears in their feet. So it was another little awesome. evolutionary, little evolutionary advantage, a little, hey, why don't we add this little trick on top of all the other deadly things that we've already developed. So Allosaurus is like dominant for almost the entire, the entirety of the mid and late Jurassic period. Um, the, you know, we'll talk about T-Rex more next week, but the reason why the arms get small on these theropods and essentially like some even theropods that are in the Jurassic period, there's some that have even smaller arms than T-Rex where they're almost just vestigial arms. Like it's just a little bitty forearm like sticking out of their chest. They can't even really, there's not even like real muscles attached to it. It's just like, you know, an extra like like an extra little finger that was put on your hand or something. Um, the evolutionary process of that is if the niche that you're going for, that you keep finding has success, is incredibly powerful jaws, then you need to have a really big head. And if you need to have a really big head so that you can have a really powerful bite, you need to have a really strong neck. And your neck muscles, even in mammals today, there is an opportunity cost trade-off between having incredible upper body arm strength or having incredible neck strength. Like you build one up, it means that the other is going to become smaller and less useful. Um, And if everything is then going to be evolutionarily sacrificed for that head and jaw, to be the primary modality of how you navigate the world, you're going to offshoot everything into building up these giant neck muscles, which means that your shoulder muscles are going to be nothing, and eventually you will have no musculature in your arms at all, and they will become vestigial. That's such a weird image of just, like, (laughs) there's no two-legged things that exist right currently i can't think of anything that only like yeah birds have wings but like is there anything that has no four limbs totally two lay only two legs and no no (laughs) even vestigial extensions anymore i wonder yeah i can't think of any i mean i guess like tadpoles but that's not really yeah but that's because they grow the legs first before they that's more of a you know, their development. I don't know. Yeah. I need to look this up because that, that just, it sounds so, I mean, obviously we've all seen cartoons of like T-Rex that have, you know, trying to take a selfie or whatever. <laughs> um, but I mean, those is not accurate. That, that niche is the niche that goes extinct in the crustaceous. The theropods that continue are the more bird-like theropods mm-hmm. that have more developed arms that are used for wings and flying like archaeopteryx not the 
and not the apex predator that was designed to kill everything on the planet and you just don't need arms to do that if you have this type of jaw <laughs> yeah yeah uh man that's crazy well i think my one thing that i really enjoyed about this was i got to finally take a detour through the ginkgo tree ah yes let's get some flora flora <laughs> yeah we've talked all the fauna I I really like the ginkgo tree um and it the ginkgo mm-hmm, ginkgo is ginkgo is <laughs> I don't know how to say it <laughs> the like family or whatever the the taxonomical you know mm-hmm. uh I can't remember if it's order we'll get to that in a minute as I read through Phylum, my notes order but they species, family species species family yeah it's it's some it's <laughs> higher up god i'm trying to remember um where did i even okay yeah it's the order there we go it was it was the next bullet point. there you go um <laughs> so the this order of plants arises during the jurassic and it's a gymnosperm which means it's an it's a naked seed um and the thing that's really cool about it, so it's it's a naked seed, so it's similar to conifers, but conifers, as they lose lose, they they're not conifers because they they lose their leaves in the fall. Okay. So like it's essentially the only we still have ginkgo trees. It is the only living link between ferns and seed plants that oh. exists. So it's like a a living missing link. But the even crazier thing is there's only one species of this order that still exists. Because the way that the seeds are, they're like really big, uh, but they, they're naked. So they don't have like a fruit around them. And because they're so large and naked, so it like is easier to just decompose than plant another tree it's not super efficient at naturally surviving Mm -hmm. um, because it's very complicated for that seed to have the right conditions to form another tree. Uh, But the trees are very resilient. Um, They are able to live through like massive natural disasters. They can be blown over and the plant is still alive. Uh, It's, it's, it's insane isn't and there again, something like one that's like 10,000 years old or something like that? Yeah, there's there's one in China that is predicted to be 3,500 years old. Okay. Uh, of course, there's probably others in legend that are like, people say it's 1,000 years old, but it's probably at like a temple, so they won't let you drill through oh, it yeah, to actually get a, measure. get a core. Yeah. And the way that ginkgo trees operate, they don't have like the same structure as as flowering plants so you don't get the same sort of they have rings because they grow but they it's not the same sort of one ring equals one year okay like it's a weird it's a weird plant it Um, it evolved before the 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 four common seasons that we understand now that all the modern trees yeah exactly (laughs) (laughs) but again this is like 150 million year old species essentially now it was like a little bit of ancestors but imagine the climates that it's lived through mm-hmm. um but again just one species exists from the ginkgo goals i'm gonna call it that 
And that means that of the order of primates, only one species exists. Or of the order that dogs currently, you know, inhabit, that is carnivora. So that means you have one species that exists, but you're taking into account bears, walruses, cheetahs, Mm -hmm. like every sort of carnivore. Only one of those remains extant. And it's a fox. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, we only have a fo- one fox left. <laughs> it, but it would, be, it would be something that is adaptive, and foxes, I guess, are pretty adaptive. Um, but the thing about these is as Laurasia and, and whatever else was all breaking apart, uh, these ginkgos started going extinct, especially in the... Cretaceous, when we're going to speak about flowering plants, um, they were just not as adaptive. So they shrunk in size and for whatever reason, like central, what is now central China was a very um, habitable place for ginkgos. And they were able to stay there for, you know, millions of years as as the climate changed and everything like that. Um, but by the time in like like about 10,000 years ago, or probably not 10,000, but let's say 3,500 years ago or something, um, monks in China discovered these plants. And I can only imagine seeing as how there were very few of them still around, um, thought, oh, maybe this plant is sort of special. The... The seeds that you eat, I think, are fairly nutritious. Um, I've had them. They're they're very good tasting. <laughs> uh, so they started planting these trees at shrine or at temples, uh, and it became a very popular like Buddhist plant. Um, it was then shipped to uh, you know all over Asia and especially Japan, which is where I you know saw them all the time. Um, so much so that the ginkgo leaf is the symbol of Tokyo. Okay. And it's, it's, it's just very cool to me that like they were near extinct. They were going extinct finally around the time that some monks thought, Hey, we'll preserve this plant. And now this 160 million year old fossil (laughs) is populating all over the place. But... (laughs) To further, like, make this story complicated for humans to keep it around, uh, I think it's the female plants. They, like, once a year smell horrible. Oh. (laughs) (laughs) Like, like it's the type of plant that through the seasons, it just, like, releases its, you know, smell that is just terrible. The, The male plants are, like, a 7 out of 10 on the allergen spectrum (laughs) (laughs) like they're nasty to be around it's Um, an invasive species why did we spread it all over the world (laughs) (laughs) there but it's it's just something that's i don't know i always found it really cool when i first learned about this that they've existed for so long and through human cultivation really Mm -hmm. um there's like some famous ones. Um, the oldest one, as I said, is predicted to be 3,500 years old. There's one that's a thousand years old that is in 
a temple in Japan somewhere. Uh, it's nicknamed the Hiding Ginkgo because there's a legend that this one like guy was assassinated by his nephew in 1219 and the nephew had been hiding behind the tree uh, <laughs> and jumped out and killed him. And while that's like, you know, it's kind of cool that there's this tree that like they have a specific date because they, you know, Japan was very good at keeping records. Um, the 13th of February in 1219, he was assassinated, yeah. but that they have art from like the beginning of this temple uh, it may be a shrine, I can't remember, that has this same tree like in the the images. And in 2010, there was like a huge storm and it blew over uh, and they thought it was dead. They just like left the stump there. But in like the last three years, the roots have just sprouted like new yeah. new limbs. So it's, it's really cool to see. Um, I recommend looking up ginkgo trees. So they're probably one of my my favorite trees. Oh, and uh, to again talk about how tenacious they are, there are six ginkgo trees that survived the Hiroshima bomb, like still standing. Uh, it's they don't, like they didn't get like irradiated and turn into mutant ginkgo trees or something. No, and they were only one to two kilometers away from the blast, like. So many other living things died there, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, but these trees still stand and they're at different, you know, temples or shrines in different places. And you can go around and see them. They've still got signs on them that talk about it. But just knowing that, like, this tree was able to survive probably the worst human made disaster yet um, while going through all of these other extinction events is just very cool to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is cool. I'm I'm not I didn't study up on the plants. So I'm glad you did. That's why I'm here, right? <laughs> well, um that's about all my Jurassic notes. Oh, we didn't mention uh the Brachiosaurus or the Brontosaurus controversy. Oh yeah. What what was that? It was like Yeah. In was it in the 90s or early 2000s? It was when I was a kid. So you had, let's see, Apatosaurus and like Brontosaurus was around first, but then there was like the big discovery or they thought they discovered that the guy who had found the Brontosaurus fossil like had found everything except the head. So he just took the head from a much smaller sauropod dinosaur and like stuck it on it and called it Brontosaurus. (laughs) And so... um, after sort of that was like discovered, people just decided, oh, Brontosaurus never existed. It was a fake dinosaur. It was an Apatosaurus. And this guy just stuck a small head on an Apatosaurus. So everyone was just like, okay, it's no Brontosaurus exists. But then there were a lot of things pointed out in the differences in the skeletons between the Brontosaurus specimen and the uh, Apatosaurus skeleton, specifically in like the hips and the way the spine was fused and... That type of stuff. And so now Brontosaurus is back. Like for mo- for like most of my childhood and early adult years, like Brontosaurus was a fake dinosaur that you made fun of for people for bringing up. And be like, oh, yeah, Brontosaurus. Yeah, you must have really liked dinosaurs when you were a kid because now we all know that's a fake dinosaur. <laughs> it's like Pluto. Yeah, but guess what? 
back on the dinosaur list. We got him back, guys. Brontosaurus is a real dinosaur. So Wait, so you're saying the original guy that discovered the Brontosaurus put a different head on it? Yes. Or that's what people thought that he did when they were examining it because they could not find another specimen that had a head like that. And they thought that he took the skull from a smaller sauropod or there was a smaller sauropod near the fossilized remains of the brontosaurus and he's like oh this must be the skull um and that's why people were all like oh well he's it's a fake fake dinosaur but not a fake dinosaur real dinosaur and so is that head the actual brontosaurus head or they still don't know i i don't know if that was ever discovered if that is actually the same head because i think all they have is like other partial skeletons of brontosaurus Uh, and if you look up apatosaurus even today like a lot of things will say that it's this like also known as brontosaurus um and some of the records that you can find about it but anyway that was a fun little fun little journey of a design of a dinosaur being marked off the dinosaur list and then later in my 20s it got added back to the dinosaur list (laughs) you get to pull your brontosaurus t-shirt out from the back of the closet yeah it's like haha yeah so uh if you look up brontosaurus a lot of times you'll get redirected to a patosaurus and if you look up a patosaurus now you'll get redirected to brontosaurus but in fact Technically, the common understanding is that they are two different dinosaurs. Yeah. Well, but hey, we're in the air, we're like in the area bullsh- of uh, like uh, sixty new dinosaur species found every year. It's like they're just popping up all over the place. Can't you, yeah. you can't even go for a walk without finding a new dinosaur species? Hasn't there like they predict that there's been four thousand species of dinosaur discovered total? Uh something like that. And it's tough to know because sometimes there's been speciation um, decisions made when maybe that was like a juvenile version of another dinosaur. Oh. And then you go back and you find more skeletons and then you make that correction. You're like, oh, we thought we had another species here, but it's actually a juvenile version of this. So that's the same species. Or you thought that oh, this is the female version of this, and this is the male version of this, and then you find out, oh, wait, no, those are actually two totally separate species, even though they're very similar. They're, it's This is huh. not a, uh, a sexual, uh, what is that called? Sexual dimorphism? Sexual? Yeah. Yeah, um, where there's a slight variation in the characteristics because they're different gender. This is a totally different species. Hmm. But again, that's all because we're talking about excavating fossils that are in very thin layers and sometimes they're so close together but the creatures that you're excavating might be you know a million years apart in the timeline and a lot of speciation and variation can happen in a million years (laughs) so yeah it's it's tough it's tough to really know but as more and more and more specimens are found and as the those libraries of the fossil record get you know become more and more vast we fill those holes and you know the picture becomes more clear fill those air sacs yeah baby air sacs for everybody oh and that's the other reason why they could get really big too was uh the the thing the other thing that helps you get really huge and also take over the planet 
is if you are a egg-laying creature because you will lay lots of offspring at once. They're all very tiny, even if you're a huge sauropod, like the the babies that hatch out of these eggs are like smaller than a kitten. Um, and you don't have to worry about, as a female, like gestating your young. Um, so like elephant, the bigger an animal gets in modern times, the longer the gestation is for the offspring, usually, as if they give birth to live offspring. So like an elephant gestates for like over two years to give birth to one offspring. So one, there's a big uh, biological cost when, as far as how big you can get, if you're going to have to give birth to a live young. And mm, yeah. so you kind of reach those limits. Um, you're not going to be able to get much bigger than an elephant if you're still going to be giving birth to live young. Um, and two, you just have the timeline is a big issue when you're having to gestate live young and you're not giving birth to like litters of live young, like rabbits or cats or whatever. Um, so if you can give, if you can lay two dozen dinosaur eggs, that's a way faster way to populate the planet with your species than it is if you're gestating live young. Well, yeah, I hadn't really considered that, but the energy input for gestation and then like nursing too yeah. for mammals. Um, yeah, that makes sense though. It's all about those, uh, those opportunity, uh, cost trade-offs whenever you evolve, you know, you can get some really badass things, but it doesn't mean you get to keep the other badass things. You gotta, yeah. there's always a trade-off. Yep. Just like Civ five. Okay. I don't know what that is. I don't know what that is either. <laughs> I think it's a video game. <laughs> well, Happy uh, happy opening day of the Mavericks. Hope you'll enjoy the season. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, I set my DVR. <laughs> good, good. I mean, you'll probably be able to watch it out there. Us people that live in Dallas, it's tough to watch the Mavericks. Uh, at least you get the radio. Yeah, I will be listening on the radio tonight. All right, great job, Eric. <laughs> Until next week. See ya. Bye.